Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Lauren Evans. And I'm Kelsey Bowler. We have so much to unpack for you today. We're going to be discussing why women are more likely to prefer socialism, AOC already wanting a pay raise, live action getting deplatformed, and Keanu Reeves' hover hand. And we'll also crown our Problematic Woman of the Week. Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman yourself, or if you support strong right-minded women, please consider supporting the show and helping us reach an even bigger audience by leaving us a five-star rating on iTunes and encouraging your friends to listen and subscribe. It really does make a difference. Did you know that 55% of women now say they would prefer socialism? That's what a Harris poll for Axios on HBO said this week. They surveyed 2,024 adults and found that 4 out of 10 people and a majority of women between the ages of 18 and 54 would actually prefer to live in a socialist country rather than a capitalist country. What's interesting is that in the same poll, men would actually prefer to live in a capitalist country. Kelsey, why do you think this is? It's interesting that more women are flocking to socialism than men. And you do have to ask that important question of why. And the only conclusion that I can draw is because women are constantly told that we are oppressed. We're constantly told that we are victims. And we're constantly told that we are unequal in American society. And when you're constantly fed these messages, a certain percentage of women are sadly going to start to believe them. So I think it's important to take a step back in this conversation and talk about what socialism really is. What's popular right now is democratic socialism. And if you talk to anybody who identifies as a democratic socialist, they'll be quick to tell you, I am not embracing what's happening in Venezuela or the old Soviet Union socialism model. They'll cite countries like Denmark and Sweden. So I wanted to take a second to talk about Denmark. A lot of this information I'm pulling is from this great new heritage analysis that we will link to in the show notes. And what they found is that most Nordic countries have a 50% tax on all income earned over $37,000 a year. $37,000 is not a large income. And imagine being taxed 50% of that. Higher incomes are actually taxed at even higher rates. And that is just your income tax. That doesn't include taxes like Social Security or other benefits. So often the average tax for people living in these Nordic countries ends up being somewhere around 70% if you're making a decent amount of money. Well, if you were making a decent amount of money, because that's all half of that. (laughs) More than half of that is getting taken away from you. On top of that, this is a piece I think people often forget about. But if you've ever visited Europe, you know that they have these VAT taxes, V-A-T. And these are sales taxes on goods and services. On average, they are 20% or even higher. And of course, they impact every member of society from the rich to the poor because this tax applies to anything you go and purchase, whether that's milk at the store, a new dress, (laughs) anything you go buy food, restaurants. The important question that we need to be asking 
those Americans and specifically American women. I hope some of the democratic socialist women who are now uh, wanting to live in a socialist country would consider answering this question for us. What percent of your income are you actually willing to pay in taxes? I was actually doing this debate just the other day with uh, Young Turks, which are sort of the very Democrat (laughs) socialist wing of the left. And I put the girl that I was debating on the spot and said, what are you willing to pay in your taxes? And of course, she couldn't answer. They never can. And I think that speaks to the whole problem here that Democrats right now are calling for these very massive social welfare programs that they say are similar to what's happening in these Nordic countries. And it's important to note these Nordic countries, Denmark especially, is not a socialist country. They have free markets. They are a capitalist country. And the prime minister of Denmark has actually had to correct Bernie Sanders when he suggested otherwise. But the Heritage Foundation analysis found that all these programs together, including the Green New Deal, Medicare for All, paid family leave, would cost $5 trillion every year. So how are we going to pay for that? Of course, they cite the wealth tax. We're going to tax the billionaires 70%. And Heritage Foundation found, well, what would that actually raise? $300 billion a year. So $300 billion a year versus $5 trillion a year is what these programs totally cost. That's just 6%. And so there's this huge discrepancy between the numbers. So, you know, that gets to my second question that I think Democrat socialists need to answer is, how do you plan to pay for your massive programs? The only way you can pay for them is by taxing not just the wealthy, the middle and lower classes at huge, huge rates, even higher than what's probably happening in countries like Denmark, because Denmark is a very homogenous population. And the the last thing I want to add is that just the other week, I was following an interesting election happening in Denmark where uh, there's a new female prime minister who won, and she does herself identify as a Democrat socialist. Um, but she is a Uh, This is according to CNN, of all places. She's a Democrat socialist who has embraced, quote, some of the most aggressive anti-immigration laws in Europe. These laws include banning face coverings, enacting a moratorium on accepting U.N. refugee resettlement quotas, and enacting ghetto laws, which specifically target minorities and immigrants. So is this what's happening in Denmark? Is this the Democrat socialism utopia? That you really want. That's what I would ask all these women, the 55% of American women who now say they would rather live in a socialist country than in a capitalist country like what we have here. Kelsey, I think you're so right. And you hit the nail on the head, especially with your first point, is that women are constantly told that capitalism is for mean people and socialism <laughs> is for nice people. Right, you know, and we all want to be nice. Exactly. Capitalism so mean. They only pay you 82% <laughs> of what a man does. And they're never told the truth. They're never told what you just said. And that's why it's so important that we as conservative women and we as a conservative movement are really supporting shows like Problematic Women, shows like She Thinks by IWF and Bev Hallberg, shows like Lady Brains, email products like Bright these podcasts and email lists and Facebook groups, whatever we can do to reach women and tell them the truth. Absolutely. Well, speaking of socialism, 
We're not done with it yet. <laughs> the infamous Democratic Socialist AOC already wants a pay raise. Apparently, the modest salary of $174,000 plus very good benefits isn't enough money for her. A freshman member of Congress told reporters this week that the $4,500 pay hike that Democrats proposed as part of a new spending bill is, quote, not even like a race, she said. Why there's so much pressure to turn to lobbying firms and to cash in on, on member mm-hmm. service after people leave because, um, because precisely of, of this issue. So it may be politically convenient and it may make you look good in the short term for mm-hmm. saying, oh, we're not voting for pay increases, but we should be fighting for pay increases for every American worker. Mm-hmm. We should be fighting for a $15 minimum wage pegged to inflation so that everybody in the United States with a salary, with, with a wage, gets a cost of living increase. Members of Congress, retail workers, everybody should get uh, cost of living increases to accommodate for the changes in our economy. And then when we don't do that, it only increases the pressure on members to exploit loopholes like insider trading loopholes to make it on the back end. So do you think there's a I'm tendency? Do you think there's a tendency? So Lauren, is she right? Do members of Congress deserve a raise? $174,000. To any of my bosses or managers listening, a $4,500 pay hike, I'd be very happy with. But where? what is that salary? I mean, how much higher can you go where you wouldn't be tempted by lobbyists? Is it 200000 Is it 300000 Is it 500000 Because lobbyists have a lot of money. Right. And the whole way she sets up this answer is really backwards. She's basically telling us that in order for us not to steal or commit financial crimes, you need to pay us more. How backwards is that? These are members of Congress who are supposed to be some of the most upstanding citizens in our country telling us that if you don't pay us more, it's your fault that we are going to exploit the system, take advantage of these loopholes, and partake in insider trading. Heaven forbid we pass laws and hold members accountable so that they are not engaging in any of those things. No, we just need to pay them more. It is so backwards. And they're not even doing their job. They haven't passed a balanced budget since before some of our listeners were even born. They haven't passed a balanced budget since 1998. That's 21 years ago. And they want to raise? Like, do your job better. That's a good point, because if we had a budget surplus, that means they would be doing a good job taking care of the taxpayer dollars that we are paying them. But to put this into perspective, The average American household, not just the average American, entire household, the average American household income is $59,000 a year. That amounts to just about one third of what members of Congress make. So for AOC, someone who identifies as a democratic socialist, to go out there and tell people who are making far less than she is that you need to pay me more so that I don't commit insider training is... Very presumptuous. But in AOC's defense, the pay hike was actually tabled because of pushback within AOC's own party by more moderate Democrats who knew this wouldn't play well. And I also think, to be fair, we need to note that it did have the support of some Republicans, including House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy and House Minority Whip Steve Scalise. According to Politico, they supported the measure. So I'm sure we'll be back at some point, but for now, I'm kind of glad that they're not getting a raise just yet. 
On that note, we're going to take a quick break, but we still have a lot to get to when we come back. Stay tuned. Do conversations about the Supreme Court leave you scratching your head? Then subscribe to SCOTUS 101, a podcast breaking down the cases, personalities, and gossip at the Supreme Court. Live Action, a pro-life new media organization, was permanently banned from the social media platform Pinterest Tuesday. Pinterest claimed Live Action's pro-life content, or PINs, went against their policy on misinformation and, quote, may have immediate and detrimental effects on pinners, that's what Pinterest calls its users, health or public safety. If you want to read the whole email, Live Action tweeted it. I would definitely recommend that you go do that. This is so similar to what went down last week with Steven Crowder and with YouTube, where kind of out of the blue, these conservative groups have been doing the same thing for a long time. These tech platforms have changed their policies and then penalized conservative groups. And with the case of Pinterest, they're calling live action spreading misinformation. They're literally just spreading pro-life views and organizations like Planned Parenthood, local NARAL chapters, they still have their profiles on the website. So Kelsey, technically Pinterest, Twitter, YouTube, they're private companies. So this isn't a First Amendment issue, but it's still a free speech issue. What do we do about all these big tech companies banning conservative organizations and conservative groups from even being on their website? Right. I do think this is a big deal and we have to be careful in our response to it, because as you noted, these are private companies. They can come up with their own policy decisions that you have to abide to in order to use their platforms. That said, I think what they are doing is extremely dangerous to American society, civil society. If YouTube and Pinterest just want to pretend that conservative pro-life views don't exist, they're going to push them into the dark corners of the web. And we're not going to be able to have actual discussions, important discussions about when life begins, for example, um, with people who disagree with us. And if you look at what Live Action was sharing, um, I was looking at Lila Rose, her Instagram this morning, and they were pretty harmless. They're pro-life messages. So for Pinterest to ban one side of this debate, but not the other, of course, feels like we're being targeted. It's easy to feel like we're being victimized, which as a conservative woman, I hate pulling the victim card. But I think we need to name and shame whenever this happens. We need to be vocal about why this is the wrong business decision for them to do that and push back and convince them to change their minds because I don't think they're helping further civil society at all by pretending half of this country's views don't exist. And what they're doing is there's the idea of the Overton window, right? And that is what acceptable speech is in society. And they're continually pushing this Overton window left till eventually you just won't be able to say any conservative view online. Right. And this is why I guess so many people were surprised when Donald Trump won in 2016, because you don't hear these perspectives as often because we are getting boxed out of the conversation. But I guess this is becoming a reoccurring theme of this podcast, and that is that it is now more important than ever before to lift up the voices of conservatives, um, share them on social media, on the platforms where we can to make sure our voices are out there and to show that we're not going to back down. We are going to find a way to make our voices heard. We are not going anywhere. 
But on that note, Lauren, let's move to a little, I guess, more lighthearted subject. For our celebrity news of the week, our, the hot gossip, <laughs> actor Keanu Reeves was trending on Twitter this week. And according to an article by ET Online, for those old folks, that's Entertainment Tonight Online, it's because of the way that he takes photos with his fans. In a collage of photos with the actor, it shows Keanu repeatedly doing a quote-unquote hover hand, which if you don't know what that is, it's kind of like an internet meme term for not touching the person that you're taking a photo with, but kind of holding your hand a couple inches away. So these are photos with primarily with women, and most of his fans were pretty positive about this, saying, you know, he's only protecting himself, and it's respectful towards women. Right. I looked at this and I thought, this is really smart of him to do, but it's also really sad. It's smart in the sense that he's aware of what's happening in our culture right now with the hashtag MeToo movement, where men can very easily be accused of inappropriate behavior. Joe Biden comes to mind, getting a little too close for comfort with some women. And so he took the proactive step it appears, of not touching women when he takes photos with them. I think it's sad in the sense that men have to be so guarded that they can't do something as simple as taking a photo with women and put their arms around them in a completely innocent way, especially when it's most often the women asking to take the pictures with him. But that said, I also thought back to Kanye West when I read this because I remember reading a while ago that Kanye West doesn't put his hands on women when he takes pictures with them out of respect for his wife, Kim Kardashian West. So I give Kanye credit in that regard. And I think men probably have different reasons for doing the so-called hover hand. I'd be curious to learn more about it. But yeah, I think it's smart and sad at the same time. And let us know what you think. Tweet, hashtag problematic women. Should men use hover hands in photos? But with a good that, question. Yeah. <laughs> okay, with that, it's time to take another quick break. And when we come back, we sat down with the one and only Mary Catherine Ham, CNN contributor and conservative powerhouse. Stay tuned. Looking for a short morning podcast to give you the news of the day without liberal bias? The Daily Signal podcast is a rundown of the top stories you need to know that the mainstream media is probably ignoring. Do you identify as a problematic woman? Also, do you identify as a feminist? Uh, I'm definitely a problematic woman, <laughs> according to my Twitter feed. Uh, <laughs> I also, um, yeah, I think I do identify as a feminist in the traditional sense that I think men and women can share equal roles, but they're not equal beings. Like, they're not the same being. That is the, that's the difference, right? That's the divergence. Um, and our goals are not the same, and they don't have to be the same. And I think uh, too often modern feminism treats us like we all have to be the same and treats all women as if they have to be the same and they just don't and polling shows that often women's career goals and women's uh, takes on uh, issues even stuff like uh, abortion issues that they're far more pro-life than the feminist movement gives them any credit for Um, and I think you're right that they think of us as problems that have to be solved and I think that's a that's a good thought to take into any conversation you're having politically. And I tell kids on campuses, or excuse me, they're adults. Adults <laughs> on campus. I'm an old person they look like now. Kids. I'm an old Sometimes. person. Um, students on campuses all the time do not aim to convert people when you're having a political conversation. Just aim to engage them. Aim to make them think something they've never thought before. That's it. 
Um, because when you're treating people like, I need you to come to my side right now, they're not interested in having that conversation with you and you're not going to earn any credit for being heard, basically. And I think that's a lot of the problem that the Democratic Party and the left has communicating with more moderate voters. They're like, what's wrong with you, you cretin? Vote for me. <laughs> that's not a super appealing message. Well, to follow up on the question about feminism, this is something that conservative women are divided on. Many of the women you and I know, half of them identify as a feminist, half right. of them completely reject that label. Um, what led you to ultimately say, yeah, I'm okay embracing the label feminism, but this is my kind of feminism? Um, because I think, so what brought me to it is, is the story of my grandmother. So my grandmother was um, born in the 1920s in rural Virginia. She played competitive basketball in high school. She went to college. Uh, she was a Navy wave during World War II. She had top secret clearance. She worked in Washington, D.C. as a single woman. Uh, she charted where Japanese subs were uh, so that that information could get to the people who needed to deal with those subs. Um, when her childhood sweetheart came back from the European theater after 32 successful missions as a bombardier, they got married, had three kids. Um, she moved them all across the world, across the country, often without her husband because he was deployed or he was living elsewhere. And she later became, oh, he, he died young. She soldiered on. She raised her kids. Uh, she became like town council head at one point, got a key to the city, um, and lived basically all of her years being awesome. Uh, she was <laughs> conservative from day one to the end. But you cannot tell me that woman wasn't a feminist. And that, that is why I'm like, that's why I like that word. Because even if, even if my grandmother wouldn't have said it, that's all the things. Mm -hmm. In a time when things were much harder for women than they are now, and we had far fewer opportunities, she did all those things. And you're gonna tell me that because she happened to vote Republican, that she doesn't count as like a liberated woman? Nah. So how do you think we can take back the F word as sometimes Kelsey will say? <laughs> I mean, I think with stories like that, um, and also it doesn't, that's, that's the other thing, it's like, it, it doesn't have to matter so much what you call yourself. Um, we live in an age where we, we do have the luxury, and I, that's the other thing that many feminists will say, of the left, will say, uh, you're standing on people's shoulders um, and, you're, and you're not giving them credit. Well, my grandmother was one of those women, and she wasn't down with their program, right? It, it does, and so it doesn't have to matter so much. We, we, are, we have been given an age and all of this opportunity in this glorious country uh, where we have the ability to be different and think different, and that's fine. And I just, the obsession that the left often has with conformity, although they give themselves a lot of credit for being nonconformist, um, <laughs> with conformity and like requiring that you say these certain things in these certain ways, it's part of the reason I wrote my book, End of Discussion, is because that's very confining, and it's not what freedom is about. Um, so if Beyonce wants to call herself a feminist, and by the way, she's been attacked at times for not embracing <laughs> that term enough, um, or if whoever, or Katy Perry doesn't, or, I don't care. I don't care. If you go out there and work and you get opportunities, um, and I think we all have those opportunities, not a perfect world, but they're, all, they're out there for us, I don't get up in my head about it. <laughs> right, and I think one example I like to cite often is the fact that uh, many of the women who got us the rights that we have today were actually pro-life. Right. Um, I think there's been a huge revisionist history when it comes to 
uh, the different types of women who were involved with the quote women's movement. Um, you're also a mom of two yes. very adorable little girls. Thank you. <laughs> we wanted to ask how becoming a mom has affected the way you see feminism and how you see politics as a whole. Um, I think so. I think it. I think it adds perspective, um, and I don't mean that in like. Now I think that we should fight for federally funded childcare for everyone because that, actually, if you look at stats from countries where that happens, you get less movement in the workforce for women and less. It's it has its downsides just as all uh, programs do. The perspective I mean is actually that um, politics should not rule your life, and that there are far more important things and more fun things to be doing. Um, I know that's ironic because I do this job, but I do this job because I believe in certain things and I want to pass them along to a new generation and that is important but the day-to-day -day back and forth of politics becomes much more petty seeming and much less important. We live in an age where it is already very petty um, <laughs> but um, I think that perspective is helpful. It, it helps me to disconnect. It helps me to focus on what is more important. Um, so I think that's that's the main thing. Uh, not so much the, I mean, there are policy realizations, and I think that's one of the, the part that's a policy thing. Is I, because of my situation, um, I have lived as a like single driven career woman. I have lived as a married uh, career woman with no kids. I've had, I've been a married career woman with kids, and I'm now a single widowed mom with two kids who still has a career. So I've, I've lived a lot of different sort of like. <laughs> All, a lot of women's roles in there. Um, and so I think it's given me perspective on it's too easy sometimes for Republicans to just say, well, uh, tax policy is women's policy too, and why do we have to message to them? No, there are different segments of people who have different concerns, and I've lived in a lot of those segments now, and you should attempt to speak to those people in different ways. So I think it's more of a messaging realization than it is a policy realization but too often conservatives go well the tax policy is good for everybody so why are we even bothering to explain or, or to appeal and it's like no you have to do that work so. Agreed. and that gets into my next question a lot of people think conservatives are like these old stuffy white men and and you are not old and you are not stuffy so how um as we as conservatives how can we show everyone that we're fun and we are not these like kind of old men in boardrooms yeah, okay, so I, I think part of it is that we do have to work to put, um, and this is this is something that conservatives will, again, sort of get their backs up about, is, is working for diversity, wait for it. But it is important to include the women and the different faces that we have in our movement, put them out front to give them opportunities to grow, to make sure you're mentoring younger women um, and that they have opportunities to get better at the things uh, we're doing. It doesn't mean you're putting people up who are not qualified just because they are a woman, but there are opportunities to lift people up. Um, and we should be doing that in our movement because it's good to hear uh, from those people. Um, and I know people will, will get a little sensitive about that, but it's something that, I mean, I love speaking to young women for that reason. Um, it turns out that I am naturally mouthy and contrarian and not really that afraid to speak up. But there are different personalities out there and there are different people who have had different experiences um, and encouraging them is part of what I like to do. I like to go to campuses and say, hey, you don't have to like, be quiet all the time. I know it's scary. <laughs> um, but 
On the other hand, the left is making it easier for us to seem more fun because particularly on college campuses, uh, they are real stodgy. They are the fun police. <laughs> they are puritanical. They have speech codes. They have, I mean, it's like, it's like going to a very strict Christian university in the opposite direction. You know, it's just the other side's rules. Um, and they won't let people out of their boxes. They won't let people think differently. They won't, people, they won't let people say different things or watch mainstream movies on campus because they're quote unquote problematic. Um, <laughs> so I think those things uh, are important. It's important for us to point out that, hey, um, they won't let you guys watch movies or have comedians on campus. Woo, they're so cutting edge. <laughs> they're super cutting edge. Right. Um, and we're not those people. And we should embrace not being those people. You made the decision to not show your daughters on mm -hmm. any of your social media accounts. And this is a major decision that parents need to make right. uh, in this day and age. What kind of was your thought process through making that decision? Um, so one, I know that I'm in politics, which is not you know, the nicest field. <laughs> so I know that there are people out there who just like me. They make it very clear. Um, my kids didn't ask for this job. They don't do this job. They don't get paid for this job. They didn't accept the downsides of it like I did willingly. Um, so I don't want to subject them to that. And look, they're very cute and their pigtails are cute and whatever. But somebody always has something nasty to say. And I don't need to subject them to that any more than necessary. Uh, on the other hand, they are a huge part of my life, and I, I do want to put them out there to some extent to explain partly the perspective. Like, this is how I live my life. This, my whole life is not what you see on CNN or at a speech, um, because I think that helps humanize people. I think it helps us have better personal relationships when people know that you're an actual person <laughs> with two daughters um, and that you're not a monster, uh, <laughs> as one of my Amazon reviews said. Um, it's a very nice compliment. <laughs> but um, so I, what I do is I just don't show their faces and I don't say their names. Um, and who knows what the right choice is. But someday they can make choices about what they want to do on social media a long time from now. Um, <laughs> but they can make those choices. And I just, I just think that the environment it can be very mean. It can be very, if you're not mature when you come into it, it can quantify people's love for you in this very damaging way for young women. And so I'm going to be very careful about that as they grow up, I think. Yeah, that's so interesting because when I looked at this, I thought most moms and dads who choose not to show faces choose that only because of the extreme thinking of pedophiles or, right. you know, the worst case scenario. Mm -hmm. um, so your reasoning, I think, makes me think a little right. bit. Well, and it's also for, for people who love freedom and autonomy, like my kids have a little of that. I, I'm in charge, but they don't have to live my career. I made that choice. And so I, I try to, they'll figure out something for themselves later, but. <laughs> and that's why I love the close friend feature on Instagram now, where you can oh, just yeah. pick who can see your stories. Yeah. So you can kind of get some of that like fun, photos and not feel like you're It's also a out. bonus that they have great hair. So I can, show the, I can show the back of their heads and everybody's happy. They have amazing <laughs> hair. I can vouch for that. We are all jealous. It comes from my husband's side of the family, so I'm not bragging about myself. <laughs> all right. Well, I know Lauren has a fun question to end on, but wrapping up, big picture question. 
We have a lot of young female listeners for this pod, who, who listen to this podcast, and we wanted to ask, what is your advice for young women as they go about their career, whether that is in media or something else? And um, and I get asked this a lot when I mentor young women. How do you deal with the different transitions, the different stages, which you referred right. to earlier on? Um, and, and eventually, how do you how do you balance it all? Is there such thing as work life balance? Um, so this is going to sound a little woo woo, but I do wish that earlier in my career I had uh, taken some of those personality tests. I know some people think the Myers Briggs is nonsense or whatever. There's like the Enneagram. She's obsessed. Oh, I'm obsessed with okay. the, Enneagram. the Enneagram. So yeah, so <laughs> whatever your thing is, um, I do think it's helpful to do some kind of self analysis like that because I didn't realize I happened to stumble into it. I didn't realize that I'm just a person who's very comfortable disagreeing with people. Doesn't bother me. I think it's fun. Like <laughs> it's like I'm I'm happy to roll with the punches. Um, but I think in a in a work environment, knowing that that's your strength and knowing how it might affect other people is is very helpful. Um, and so I like I didn't even know that there were extroverts and introverts until I was like in my mid twenties. And why, there's why, extroverted introverts. Right. Why doesn't everyone want to play with me all the time? Um, and discuss things with me and debate things with me. So I think just knowing how to work in a, in a work environment, it's good to know that these different kinds of people <laughs> exist, even if your social IQ is fairly high to begin with. Um, number two, uh, figure out how to negotiate for your salary. It is hard. Um, studies have shown, this is not me being sexist, that women are less likely to ask for raises, they're less likely to ask for a larger portion of the budget, um, and it really is an issue. And it's an issue that even if you if you dig down with like with left leaning economists, they will tell you, yes, this is part of it. Like a member of uh, a member of uh, Barack Obama's economic board, famously, when pushed on equal pay day, was like, well, okay, I mean, it's not it's not just discrimination. There are obviously other factors. Um, so. And this, this is one of them. Um, Sheryl Sandberg talks about it too. So early in my career, I had a, a very gifted friend who also was a woman, but was very good at negotiating. And so she talked me through how you would do it. But you can find people who will teach you. Um, and you can be a little braver. And you can put on your big girl pants and go in there. Um, and the earlier you start learning that skill, it, ha it multiplies over your career because the higher you start, the higher your next gig is, the higher your next gig is. Um, and then for transitions, again, I don't know how much of this is just me. I have a very laid back personality. So when I came into the workforce, I was like, I'm gonna try everything that anyone throws at me. So I was like, I, I, I wrote and I meant to just be a writer. But then someone was like, do you wanna try radio? Sure, I'll try radio. <laughs> do you wanna try uh, TV? Yes, yeah, I'll try TV. Um, and then YouTube came along in my early career and I was like, let me try that. And so I just, I took some chances. I tried a bunch of stuff that I wasn't sure I was good at. Um, and I ended up with this very flexible career, but I sort of aimed the, the ship in the direction of flexibility because flexibility is what I knew I wanted when I had kids. Um, and so now I have a couple of different gigs that let me do time at home with my kids that let me be there for the first day of school for dance recitals all that kind of stuff um, and that is really valuable to me and sometimes I take less money so that I can have those things uh, so you know it's it's not a science and it's not it's not gonna be perfect and uh, what I tell like even if 
even liberal friends who are in favor of some brand new law that's going to magically make us all make the same amount of money, um, take it into your own hands. If you are an empowered woman, you know what's a quicker way than an act of Congress? <laughs> Just go ask for more money. <laughs> it's not simple. It's not fun. Um, but you can do it. Well, Mary Catherine, thank you so much for joining thank us you. on the Problematic Women podcast. Glad to be problematic with you. <laughs> Where can listeners go to follow your work? Um, so I guess the, well, I'm not on Twitter that much, but my Instagram goes to Twitter has tired me out. Um, but I'm MK Hammer on Twitter, MK Hammer Time on Instagram. Um, my Facebook is a little me. Um, but find me, find me wherever. I'm all around. My Instagram's fun. My Twitter is just me arguing with trolls, but that's that can be fun too. <laughs> well, thank you so much. It was great to have you. Thank you very much. Are you looking for quick conservative policy solutions to current issues? Sign up for Heritage's weekly newsletter, The Agenda. Each Tuesday in The Agenda, you will learn what issues Heritage scholars on Capitol Hill are working on, what position conservatives are taking, and links to our in-depth research. The Agenda also provides information on important events happening here at Heritage that you can watch online, as well as media interviews from our experts. Sign up for The Agenda on Heritage.org today. Welcome back. It is now that time of the week to crown our problematic woman of the week. Drum roll, please. This week, the honor goes to Tiger Mom's daughter, Sophia Chua Rubenfeld. Sophia is a graduate of Yale Law School and is quite problematic these days because she landed a clerkship for Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. The reason she's problematic is because her mom, Amy Chua, the tiger mom, defended Kavanaugh during his confirmation process. So Chua works at Yale, and she reportedly helps graduates obtain these prestigious federal clerkships. Back when Kavanaugh was going through the confirmation process, she wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal praising him as a, quote, mentor to women, and she also defended him in the face of all those sexual misconduct allegations. Now, commentators on Twitter are alleging that her daughter, Sophia, only got the clerkship with Kavanaugh because her mom defended him throughout that confirmation process, not because of her own accomplishments at Yale Law School. So for the record, Sophia is a graduate student of Yale, and she had already been selected before Kavanaugh was nominated to the Supreme Court to serve as an appellate clerk for Kavanaugh when he served on the D.C. Circuit Court. So there's absolutely no evidence that her mom's op-ed had anything to do with her selection here, especially given the fact that she had already planned to do a clerkship with Kavanaugh before he was nominated. Kelsey, I think you're, as always, right. <laughs> but it goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the show. This is a non-story. A qualified Ivy League graduate is going to clerk for a Supreme Court justice. It shouldn't matter who her mom was if she's qualified. And she had already, like you said, she had already had the job before he even became the Supreme Court nominee. So... Again, it just shows the the media always claiming women are victims, always claiming the sky is falling, but it's kind of a non-story. Well, it it's it is diminishing her accomplishments. 
and victimizing her in a way when she is anything but a victim. And, you know, we have to also consider the fact that the notorious Ruth Bader Ginsburg this week uh, gave a shout out to Justice Kavanaugh for making history by bringing on board an all-female law clerk. She said, thanks to his selections, the court has this term for the first time ever more women than men serving as law clerks. So we have one example of a female law clerk. What does the left do? Diminish her accomplishments. And when this kind of came out, a lot of people were like, oh, my gosh, look what RBG said. But us here at Problematic Women, we were not surprised. During the hearings, Kelsey and I had the opportunity to sit down with these two really cool women, Sarah Pitalik and Rebecca Tableson. They're both former clerks of Justice Kavanaugh's. And they both kind of have really cool stories about how Justice Kavanaugh not helped them only professionally, but personally. Here's Club. One unique thing about my particular clerkship with Judge Kavanaugh is that between the time when I uh, was offered the clerkship and when I came to clerk, I had a child. I actually got engaged while I was clerking for Judge Kavanaugh. By the time I showed up to clerk, I was the mother of a toddler, which I don't know if that's unique among his clerks now, but at the time it was certainly unprecedented. I was the first of his clerks who had ever had that kind of familial uh, obligation to balance with the clerkship. Who knew if he was going to tolerate it for me? We scheduled our wedding for right after my clerkship with Judge Kavanaugh was supposed to finish. And as we were coming up to the wedding and towards the end of my clerkship with Judge Kavanaugh, I was helping Judge Kavanaugh with a major opinion. And I think we were up to draft 125. And it became clear that we were still going to be working on the opinion right up to the time I got married. And so I went into Judge Kavanaugh's office and I thought this through. I was so nervous. A couple of months before I clerked, while I was still just swimming around in concern about this issue, the judge called me out of the blue. He said, I know we have a situation here that I haven't personally dealt with before. He had this just very frank and open conversation with me about how he thought we could adapt hours, et cetera, to try to accommodate my needs as a mother so that I would not have to go days without seeing my child. I said, um, Judge, you know, I've been thinking about it and I think I just need one day off before the wedding just to get everything together and so I can keep working on this opinion right up till then. And he said, Rebecca, um, no, <laughs> you're going to be taking a full week off before your wedding and I'm not going to hear from you and don't worry, uh, I've got this opinion covered. I don't really need you on it, <laughs> which is true. And I'll see you at the wedding and I don't want to hear a peep from you uh, before then. He asked me what I thought you know, would be best and what would be necessary and he was just very open and respectful of my views as the person who's going to be in this situation. We came to a mutually agreeable arrangement and I was just kind of floored, you know, because I mean, I'd only had a child for a year and a half and, and I'd been working at a firm and I thought they'd been very accommodating, but no one had ever been as respectful and as um, proactive in trying to help me manage the competing obligations of my career and family 
as the judge was in that conversation. It was just, I mean, it's a small thing, but it really meant a lot to me because it was a big day and he was totally right. I really did need every day of that week before the wedding to get things together. Unsurprisingly, uh, he finished the opinion without me with no problem whatsoever. But I just, it was, I, it was a moment that really made me appreciate how he can balance really hard work with fundamentally humanity and understanding. That's going to be it for this week's episode of Problematic Women. As always, thank you for listening to our podcast. You can follow more of my work at DailySignal.com or follow me on Twitter at Lauren Eliz Evans. And you can follow my work on Daily Signal. You can sign up for Bright at GetBrightEmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Kelsey Bowler. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition of Problematic Women. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. With 55% of women preferring socialism, conservatives need your support in the podcast world. So we would greatly appreciate that five-star review on Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're telling you, it really does make a difference. Have a great week. This podcast is a product of The Daily Signal, produced by Kelsey Bowler and Lauren Evans, associate producer Samantha Rank, and editors Michael Gooden and Thalia Rampersad. Special thanks to our editor-in-chief, Katrina Trinko. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.